So we are continuing this evening in uh, John, uh, and we're going to look at uh, chapter 8, verses uh, 31 through 59. So please turn with me to John chapter 8, 31 through 59. How many of you guys in here are movie buffs? Just a few hands. You guys remember the movie, remember the Titans? I know you guys are uh, sports fans, right? It was a good movie, wasn't it? Um, based on the story of, of a black football coach named uh, Herman Boone, who was hired to be the head coach of a high school in uh, Alexandria, Virginia. And in 1971, Coach Boone was hired to replace a very successful uh, white head coach by the name of Bill Yost, who was nominated to the Virginia High School Hall of Fame. And he remained on staff uh, as an assistant coach. And this was all done back in that time as a way for schools to become more segregated. Now, as, a black, as black and white football players were boarding buses for football camp, the new black head coach had a confrontation with two white uh, players. I don't know if you guys remember that. But the white players came to him with an attitude that this was a white man's team. And Coach Boone addressed them with the question, who's your daddy? You guys remember that? Who's your daddy? And he wasn't asking who their biological fathers were, but who was in charge of the team? And the question, who's your daddy, was meant to make the point that Coach Boone was the head of the team and that if they wanted to remain part of the team, they needed to follow his instructions. So tonight in our text, Jesus is like that new head coach in the movie. He's engaged in a lively discussion and exchange with the Jewish followers who profess belief in his teaching. He's not blasting scribes and Pharisees here. He's actually laying into people who claim his name, which means we need to sit up and kind of pay attention tonight. Now, the whole discussion centers on the question, who's your father? And can you really claim God in heaven as your spiritual father? Now, the word father appears over a dozen times, and so this passage really is about fathers and sons, as we'll see as we go through this passage here. And it's one of the most powerful texts in the Gospel of John, dealing with those critical issues, which caused many to reject and resist Jesus as the Messiah, while at the same time bringing many to come to know him. So I know that many of you guys have been going through the, the book of John, so the background that I'm going to give you here is uh, probably just a refresher. But, you know, as you recall, opposition to Jesus began to intensify beginning in chapter 5 of John after Jesus healed the paralytic. And then he told him to carry his mattress. Do you guys remember that? And this happened on the Sabbath. And so the Jewish uh, religious leaders were very upset. And when Jesus explained his actions, they became irate and even more resolved than ever to do away with him altogether. Now, Jesus simply said he was acting like his father, and his father was at work on the Sabbath, and so was he. Now, the Jews understood this as a claim to be equal with God, and this was more than they could handle. And then in chapter 6, Jesus fed the multitude in the wilderness, and the crowd was ready to make him their king by force. And then Jesus sent his disciples on ahead of him, and he dismissed the crowd, after which he went off by himself to pray. Now, by this time, Jesus finished his teaching on the bread of life, and many of his so-called disciples deserted him except for the 12 disciples. And we all know that we, you know, Xavier likes to call them the dirty dozen, but these were the guys that actually stayed with Jesus. Everyone else left. They had no idea what the future held, but at least they stayed with him, right? Now, in chapter 7, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for the Feast of uh, Tabernacles, and opposition grew even more widespread and very, very intense. And by the time the chapter ends, a great number of those who heard Jesus, they had had enough, okay? They had had enough of his teaching. Some thought Jesus was demon-possessed and out of his mind, and others were ready to put Jesus to death for his claim to deity. In the last verse of chapter 7 and the next 11 verses into chapter 8, we read the story of Jesus and the Jews and the woman caught in adultery. And you guys went through that last week, right? So in chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus extends an invitation to those 
who were lost and needed to be saved. And then Jesus spoke again. He said, I am the light of the world. The one who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. While many in the audience reject Jesus as Messiah, many come to faith. John 8.30 says, while he is saying these things, many people believed in him. And so the crowd that gathers to hear Jesus speak in our passage tonight is a mixed crowd. Some believe in Jesus, while others are there thinking that he's a deceiver, and others still are determined to kill him. Some are there honestly to really listen to what he has to say, while others are there just to hear something that they can use against him. So let's look at John 8, 31 to 36, and we're going to look at Abraham, or Father Abraham. And then Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? And Jesus answered him and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. So remember verse 30, if you recall from last week, he said, and we just read this, that many believed in him. So let's just kind of pause and take a moment for a second and just kind of really look at that. We've got a bit of a problem here in in our text tonight because Jesus is addressing believers and he's saying, you're trying to kill me. That's kind of like you and I, if Jesus was in our room tonight saying, hey, we don't like what you're saying and we want to we want to kill you. I mean, it just does not make sense, right? So what believer in their right mind would tell Jesus, uh, you know, that we want to kill him? So as the conversation continues, Jesus will say to that same group, you are of your father, the devil. Now, we could solve that problem by saying in verse 30 and 31, there's a bunch of people that believed him, but it was a shallow, very superficial faith. Okay, it wasn't didn't really wasn't really rooted deep. Or we're dealing with two separate groups here in these verses. Verse 30 is one group. Verse 31 is another group. But notice something. In verse 30, it says, as he spoke these words, many believed him. They believed in him, or the King James says, on him. So they're leaning completely on him, and it's very genuine belief. Okay? So, in verse 31, it doesn't say they believed in him. It says, Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, in isn't there. So isn't that interesting? From verse 30 to 31, there's a, there's a little bit of, uh, of a difference there. In other words, they're only accept, they've only accepted his message. I'm sorry. They only accepted his message, what he said. They liked what they heard, but it wasn't saving faith. They went, hmm, that's good. Let me, let me kind of think about it. Let me give it some thought. Okay? So they're kind of vacillating here. One commentary says this that the section is addressed to those who believe and yet who do not believe. So two different groups. They were inclined to think that what Jesus said was true, but they were not prepared to yield him the far-reaching allegiance that real trust implies. So the first step to freedom is believing in Jesus Christ. But not all belief and not all faith is saving faith. Would you guys agree with that? Didn't James say that even devils believe and they tremble? But you guys would all agree that devils don't have a saving faith, right? They just believe who Jesus is. So you remember back in John chapter 2, many believed him when they saw the signs that he performed. and But Jesus would not commit himself to them. Why do you think that was? Why would Jesus not commit himself, himself to them? Because Jesus knew that they were false believers. Okay. Now, Jesus describes this in a parable saying, these are those on rocky soil. They receive the word with joy, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in time of temptation, they do what? They fall away. No wonder Paul tells us to test ourselves, right? Test ourselves and see whether we are in the faith. Examine ourselves. So guys, 
You know, we need to do that tonight, this evening. Examine ourselves as we go through this, this passage and let there be some self-evaluation, examination, making sure we're in the faith. Now, the second step is continuing on in Jesus Christ. Notice verse 31. Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Now, if you guys haven't figured this out, John loves that word abide, right? He sprinkles it throughout all of the entire gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John. And in fact, the entire New Testament uses the word abide 34 times. And how many times do you think John uses that word? 31 times. So he leaves three for, the, for everyone else in the whole scripture to, to use. He just absolutely loves that word abide. But I think it's important for the text tonight as well as the book itself. So what does it mean? What does abide mean? It means to remain in or to continue on in something. Jesus said, if you abide, if you are continuing on, if you're remaining in my word, notice what he says you will be. You will be my, my disciples indeed. Another way of putting it is, you will be a real, authentic follower or disciple. Okay? One commentator calls abiding a long obedience in the same direction. Isn't that kind of cool? A long obedience in the same direction, continually following and continuing on. By the way, do you guys know what disciple literally means? Any guess? Follower means learner. So as the disciples um, were to be learners, it's from the Greek word mathetes. And so tonight, hopefully, that describes us. It describes that we're constantly in a mode of learning, that we're in a constant load of, of mode of, of learning, moving in a direction that we become authentic disciples, those who continue on and remo- uh, remain in that attitude of learning. So ask yourselves a couple of questions. How often do we read the Bible personally? Aside from coming to the church on Sunday or Tuesday night like tonight, you know, how often are we going through the Word? For those of us that are married, how often are we going through it with our wives? How often do you meditate on it? Where you're just not reading it, but you're actually taking it and just kind of sitting there it's kind of like, I forget the term that they, they use with uh, cows that sit there and just kind of constantly chew and chew and chew on it, right? So that's what it means, just constantly just meditating on it. Now here's the third step. The third step is knowing. And this is where you and I have formed deep convictions that are guiding principles in our life. Look at verse 32. Jesus said, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Do you realize how foreign that sounds today in our postmodern era? Today, any search for absolute truth has been abandoned. In fact, postmodernists are absolutely certain that nothing is absolutely certain, right? And that's all, about, that's, that's, that's all they're really certain about. So they have no idea. They have no clue. And Jesus is telling us, we have the ability to know the truth, and that truth will set us free. We know absolute truth. So Newsweek magazine article said, 85% of American Christians believe there are other ways to heaven other than Jesus Christ. That's 85%. There's only one way, right? Now, Jesus himself did not say, I am a way. He said, I am what? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except by who? By me, right? So in verse 32, it's one of the most famous verses in Scripture. But did you know that it's also a Scripture that's used on the seals of many colleges and universities throughout our country? It's inscribed on, you know, a lot of their emblems. Sometimes it's the whole verse. Sometimes it's just a section where it says the truth will set you free. And you know what they mean by it, right? They mean, by quoting this verse, they are saying that academic knowledge 
is the freeing journey in life, that it's all about, you know, worldly wisdom. It's all about degrees. It's all about knowledge. It has nothing to do with Jesus. Nothing to do with Jesus. But Jesus is not speaking about academic knowledge or acquiring facts. He's speaking specifically about the knowledge of himself. And how do we know that? So if we compare two complementary verses, let's look at 32 again. You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Now, if you compare that to verse 36, it says, Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you'll be what? You'll be free indeed. Okay? So it's not about acquiring academic knowledge. The context is what? Spiritual freedom, spiritual liberation. That's what he's talking about, and it comes through here in this, in this uh, text. So as we abide in Christ, we learn more and more and more every day, and then we know more and more every day. And that whole process, Jesus is starting to begin the process of freeing us spiritually. Okay? Now, Jesus, quoting Deuteronomy, he said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And then Paul said in Colossians, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So in verses 33 to 36, let's take a look at those verses. They answered him and said, We are Abraham's descendants. We have never been in bondage to anyone. Now, just keep that little statement in the back of your mind. I'm going to come back to it here um, as it relates to bondage. And how can you say you will be made free? And Jesus answered them, Most assuredly. Now, you guys know that whenever Jesus said most assuredly or in the old King James, it's what? Verily, verily, I say unto you. Um, that's kind of like in modern-day terminology. It's like, hey, dudes, listen up. You know, this is going to be really important. And that's what he's saying. So most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is what? A slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, the son makes you free. You shall be free indeed. Now, the Jews had been slaves and been in bondage their entire history. So their statement is, very, very curious, is it not? I mean, the first time you read this, how many of you guys really kind of understood what was going on here? I didn't. I mean, it was just kind of a little confusing. It didn't make a whole lot of sense, right? But these guys, Israel, had been in bondage their entire history. I mean, they'd been bondage, what, in Egypt? They'd been in bondage in, uh, in Babylon, in Assyria, Medo-Persia, Greco-Macedonia, the Syrian Empire, and at the time that this, is, um, that this conversation is going on, who was their slave master? It was Rome, right? So they were under bondage in the yoke of Rome while this was all going on. So that's why that statement is very curious. Now, this is very classic denial. Um, if any of you guys have ever spoken to an alcoholic and tried to intervene, um, what do they tell you? I can stop any time. I have no problem. You know, I'm not an alcoholic. Classic denial. And this is kind of like where these guys are right now. So what do they mean when they say that they've never been in bondage? They simply mean this. We may, we may have been in political bondage. We've never been in spiritual bondage. That's really what they're saying. Okay? So in their minds, they're a little convoluted, right? They're kind of missing the point. And they say this because they feel that because they are descendants of Abraham, that they are the chosen race, that they, nothing can go wrong with them. And we know that that's not the true, right? Not, that's not true. But they, they think because they're the Jewish people and they are Jews, that they are automatically given a place in heaven and that they are untouchable. And that's what they think. And the reason they think that is because that's what they're taught. The rabbis teach them that. Now, Jesus answers that, and he says to them this. Now, listen, he says, the worst form of slavery isn't being in Egypt. Now, this is paraphrasing. This is mine here. But he says, the worst form of slavery isn't being in Egypt for 400 years or in Babylon for 70 years. The worst form of slavery is when sin has a grip on your life and you can't get out of it. You're enslaved to it, and it's the worst way to live. That's really what he's trying to get, the, the point that he's trying to make with them. A slave is not his own master. 
He's owned and he's controlled by someone else, and he can't quit. He's unable to free himself. He's gripped by the power of slavery as it was in those days, and sin is just like that. You guys remember before you were born again? You guys tried to stop drinking. You guys tried to do stop whatever, and you just couldn't do it. I'm going to try harder tomorrow. And tomorrow came, and what happened? You were right back there, right? Flesh. It's right back there. You know, criminologists who study criminal behavior, I know there's no criminals in here tonight, but it's a, but uh, <laughs> criminologists who study uh, criminal behavior will tell you that many who are paroled or pardoned will go right back to the crimes that got them in trouble to begin with. It's become such a gripping lifestyle that it's unshakable. They, just, they can't break it. One of the best illustrations about the power of sin is from radio personality Paul Harvey. How many of you guys here remember Paul Harvey? A couple of hands. Um, probably all of us with gray hair remember Paul Harvey. But uh, he had a great illustration about an Eskimo and how an Eskimo kills a wolf. Let me just kind of read this to you. Here's what he says. He says, first, the Eskimo coats his knife blade with animal blood and allows it to freeze. Then he adds another layer of blood and then another until the blade is completely concealed by frozen blood. And next, the hunter fixes his knife in the ground with the blade up. And when a wolf follows his sensitive nose to the source of the scent and he discovers the bait, he licks it tasting the fresh, frozen blood. He begins to lick faster, more and more vigorously, lapping the blade until the keen edge is bare. Feverishly now, harder and harder, the wolf licks the blade into the Arctic night. So great becomes his craving for blood that the wolf doesn't notice the razor-sharp sting of the naked blade on his own tongue, or that his thirst is being satisfied by his own warm blood. His carnivorous appetite just craves more and more until the dawn finds him dead in the snow. Sin is just like that. It tastes good. The Bible says that sin is pleasurable for a season, that there's an allure to it. But with its tentacles, the grips become tighter and tighter, and it can absolutely destroy our lives, right? So, their hearts were so hard that they just rejected everything that Jesus said. They're like the seed that fell by the wayside. Remember that parable? The guy's out there sowing seeds, and Jesus said, some of it fell by the roadside, and the wicked one comes and snatches it away what was sown in the heart. You guys ever seen that type of person? I have, in my own family. Seeing a family member supposedly come to the Lord a couple of times only to see the cares of the world or something come by and Satan just snatch it right away. And it's disheartening as a believer because you just have so much hope. You pray for them and all of a sudden you see, wow, it's gone. Verse 35 and 36 says, And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Now, they understood this analogy. 2,000 years ago, slaves and households had no rights. Only the sons had rights. They were the heirs of the dad, and they were given the inheritance. Slaves could be booted out at any time. Jesus was the son of the father. He was the inheritor of the kingdom. And what he is simply saying is the only saying it is only the Son of God can free a slave. He's the only one that can free us as slaves to sin. We can't do it on our own. And when Jesus sets a slave free, do you know what he does? He turns that slave into what? A family member. We become adopted. We become heirs, right? And we become what? A son and a daughter of the Lord. And we're now adopted into the family. This is the point he's trying to make to them. You see how far they are? I mean, they are just way off here. Now, let's look at uh, verses 37 through 47. And here we're going to deal with uh, Jesus calling them your father, the devil. Okay, so let's uh, let's look at these verses now. You know, the Jews believe that God was their father, but Jesus is going to tell them here that that's not true. 
that they have the devil's DNA and in them, and they have murder in their hearts, okay? And they detest the truth. They hate God's messengers. And so in this passage, Jesus is going to give them uh, a paternity test. Hopefully none of you guys have had a paternity test, but Jesus is going to give these guys a paternity test. So let's read, starting in verse 37. And Jesus says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do not, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham's our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Now, they have no idea what he's talking about here. Absolutely no idea when he's saying your father, but they will in a moment. Now, they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word? You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you do, father, you want to do. He was of, let's see, I lost my place here. Sorry, guys. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources or, or his own native language. For he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. So the words of Jesus indicate he's kind of working off of a premise here. Okay, I don't want you to miss that. The premise is that the devil is very, very real. And he refers to the devil in this paragraph as being real. Now, in addition, he refers to the devil as someone that's personal. Now, notice the personal pronouns that the Lord uses here. He uses and he refers to the devil as he, not it, as him and, and not that. So these are very personal pronouns. In other words, Jesus' premise is the devil's real, he's historical, he's personal, and he has fallen from a place where he once was, and he has sunk to a lower place now. Okay? So look at verse 44. It says, he, referring to the devil, does not stand in truth. The old King James says, he abode not in the truth. That is, he had once a standing from which he fell, and he's no longer in that standing. He's no longer in that place. Now, to most people, the idea of a devil or a real devil is just kind of nonsense, right? Um, he's the stuff that cartoons are made of. The guy that's running around, you know, in tight red underwears with a pitchfork, uh, goatee horns, and so on and so forth, right? You know, as we're getting closer and closer to Halloween, we're going to start seeing, you know, uh, all these costumes of, uh, of the devil. But um, most people don't believe that he's real. You guys have all heard of the Gallup organization. They do a lot of polls, especially now in our our, uh, you know, political season, they do a lot of polling. But uh, the Gallup organization helps us understand what Americans really believe about the devil. And according to a Gallup poll, 70% of Americans believe in a devil. However, of the people that believe in, dev in, a, in the devil, half of the 70% say that the devil is personal and a real being. So only half of the 70% believe that the devil is real. Now, the other half believe... He's just a metaphor or a symbol of evil. He's not a real person. Now, another organization called the Barna Research Organization gives us a little bit more further insight. They developed a statement and asked people to respond to it. Do you agree or disagree with the statement? And here's the statement. The devil is not a living being. He's just the symbol of evil. Okay? So they developed this statement and they pulled it and here are the results. Here's what they found. Of those who claim to be born-again believers, okay, these are not just people in general. These are believers. 32% strongly agree the devil is not a real being. 11% agree somewhat, whatever that means. I don't, I don't know how you can agree somewhat. 
And then 5% just don't know. So here's the point they're making. 48%, almost half in the survey, said that were born a Christian, born, that said they were born again Christians, would agree that the devil isn't real. He's simply a metaphor or a symbol of evil. That's a bad commentary on us as believers, right? It's like the two little six-year-old boys who were having a conversation, and one said, I don't believe in the devil. And the friend said, you don't believe in the devil? He's written, out, he's written about all over in the Bible. And the first little kid said, yeah, I know, but he's sort of like Santa Claus. The devil turns out to really be your dad. <laughs> now, according to Jesus, the devil might be your dad, spiritually speaking, right? You just never know. There's another part of this premise that Jesus is working off of. And not only is there a real devil, but everyone, even us tonight, everyone has a relationship with him. Okay? You heard me right. Now, before you throw rocks and stone me, listen to what I'm going to say, okay? He's either your spiritual father or God is your spiritual father. Everybody would like to say, well, yeah, you know, God is my spiritual father. But Jesus is saying, uh-uh, hold on, not so quick. Not so quick. You're either on the devil's team and you're part of his family or you follow Jesus Christ, which means you've what? You've defected. You've jumped ship and the devil is now your enemy. And you might be saying to yourself, especially with all the guys in the room, no one controls me. I make my own choices, my own choices. Um, I'm the captive of my own fate, right? Well, you'd love to think so. It ain't the case. Any of you guys heard of a book called The Fight? It's a small little book. It's a, if, you, if you can find it, it's a good read. The author says this. Let me just kind of let me read this to you. You may not have realized you had a relationship with the devil at all unless you were fooling around with the occult. Yet, aware of it or not, his spirit was at work in your body unknown to you. His deceptions obscured your thinking while his music inflamed your senses and influenced your will. He thought of himself as your master, but like credit rating agencies, he makes himself unobtrusive as possible. His greatest skill lay in giving you a feeling that you were your own master. That's his lie. You're the master. You make your choices. Nobody influences you. In Ephesians 5, Paul writes, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And he goes on to sum it up with spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. If you guys have been here for the marriage ministry, for those of you guys that are married, we've been going through Ephesians chapter 5 and just the heavy influence that the spiritual, uh, spiritual realm and, and uh, this, um, you know, the, the, the demonic realm that we're, uh, we're fighting and we're dealing with, how much uh, influence there is uh, to destroy us and destroy our families, destroy our marriages. So it's no surprising that, um, you know, Paul really writes about uh, that we wrestle against this flesh and blood, uh, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against these principalities and powers. So don't you guys just love how Jesus puts all this very, very simply? He just kind of breaks it down to the bare minimum. He says, you're either born again or you're not. You're either in light or you're in darkness. You're either saved or you're lost. You're either sons of God or you're sons of the devil. You're either for me or you're either against me. It's just that simple. So as a Christian, the devil is our enemy. If you're going to have a relationship with him, you don't want him as a friend, right? You just, you don't want him as a friend. You want him as your enemy. You want to have defected from his kingdom, be followers of the Lord, because greater is he that is in you than what? Than he that's in the world, right? So let's kind of narrow our focus a little bit more. And let's look at verse 37 again, where it says, Jesus says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants. So let's kind of take a look at Abraham's descendants. And they were right. They were physical descendants of Abraham. However, they were hiding behind their physical ancestry, trusting in that for their spiritual standing uh, in, in the Lord. Verse 39 says, And they answered, and they said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. 
but now you seek to kill me. Abraham, if you guys would agree with me, Abraham's a good guy to have in your family tree, right? You know, he's, um, he's a man of faith in the Old Testament. In Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, in the New Testament, it holds up Abraham as the example of faith. And there's an entire chapter in Romans chapter 4 that's devoted to Abraham, the example of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, in that list of people who believed, Abraham is one of the first in that list of uh, people of faith. And then Hebrews also says that by faith, Abraham, what? Abraham obeyed God. So Abraham obeyed God. I'm sorry, Abraham believed God. Abraham obeyed God. And then Abraham also did what? He received messengers. You remember back in um, Genesis chapter 18, three angels as visitors came knocking on, on uh, Abraham's door, and he goes out of his way and, and, uh, and he gets Sarah to kind of whip something up for them to eat, right? You guys remember that story? And he treats them extremely well. He's very, very hospitable to them. But they were God's messengers, okay? And Jesus is saying, you might be Abraham's children physically, but you're sure not Abraham's children spiritually because Abraham wasn't trying to kill anybody. And you're trying to kill me. Abraham received heavenly messengers, and you don't even receive me. Abraham believed me, and you don't believe anything that I'm trying to tell you. So you can see big difference between the two. Guys, you already know this, but you can be related to somebody physically, but be miles apart from them spiritually. Here's an example. Ever heard of King Manasseh? You guys remember him? He was called the wickedest king in Judah, more wicked than all who had come before him. You guys know who his dad was? King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was one of the best kings that Judah had ever had. Great dad, but a really, really bad son. Related genetically, but miles apart spiritually, right? So they go from their physical birthright now to their spiritual boast, and we see this in uh, verse 41. And Jesus says, you do the deeds of your father. And again, they have no idea what he means by that. And they said to him, we're not born of fornication. So let's kind of stop there for a second. Let me explain this. This, this. this is an insult, okay? This is an absolute insult. They're trying to embarrass Jesus here. And because they know, because we know that he was born of a virgin, right? We know the truth. We know that he was born of a virgin. Mary had no relationship physically with Joseph. The Holy Spirit impregnated her, and she was a virgin when she got pregnant, Right? I wonder how many of you guys really knew this, but they were still trying to kind of jab at Jesus, trying to get under his skin. But, you know, the rumors and the gossip was going around that Jesus was an illegitimate child and that his mom had been fooling around before she got married and then she got pregnant, okay? Now, if you really want to insult somebody, you just talk bad about their mama, right? You guys remember all the mama jokes, okay? So you just talk really bad about, you know, their mama. And here... They're trying to get under Jesus' skin by saying, you know, we're not born of fornication, but they're implying that Jesus was. So I guess this is where kind of like all the first mama jokes really originated is right here in our text tonight. So sorry, I'm just trying to see if you guys are awake, all right? <laughs> so let's look at the second part of that statement. We have one father, God. Now, to this group, both the first and the second claim are tied together, all right? Because we are descendants of Abraham physically, therefore we are God's children and will be in heaven. So you can see their reasoning. Because Abraham's our father and because we're Jews, we're going to have a place in heaven and, you know, everything's going to be good. That's not what Paul says. In Romans chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, says, For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. So putting this point in, in our terms, in modern-day terms, if you have Christian parents or grandparents, you have a really good heritage because many of us didn't have 
Christian parents, right? So you have a really good heritage. For you guys that are in here, I see some young ones in the back. If your parents are born-again believers, you have a good heritage. But if you think that you'll automatically go to heaven because of the relationship in Christ, you got to think again. It's based on, on your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, here's where Jesus is going to give them their paternity test. Now, is, is there a way for us to know today, as well as these guys back then, who our spiritual father is? You guys know? Is there a way? Yeah, there is, right? So there's four questions we need to ask. First is, who do you love? Who do you love? Look at verse 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would what? You would love me. Now, did they pass this test? No, they didn't pass this test at all. They hated Jesus. They wanted to kill him. And we're told in this, this passage alone, at least a couple of times, that they wanted to kill him. And the third time was that they were picking up stones to kill him, right? So they, they absolutely hated him. They wanted to kill him. One of the signs that a person is truly following God is that he is their heavenly father and they love who? They love his son. 1 Peter 1.8 says, Even though you have never seen him, you love him, and you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. You know why Peter wrote that? Because Peter if you recall, was asked the same question three times by Jesus after his resurrection. You guys remember what it was? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Are you sure? Peter, come on, do you really love me? I would have hated to have been Peter. I mean, once is enough. I mean, when I mess up, I mean, I go to the Lord, I mean, it's, it's you know, but three times? Do you love Jesus? You guys talk about Jesus. Do we talk about him? Do we tell others about him? Do we spend time with him? That's the first part of the, per, uh, the paternity test. Who do we love? Now, question number two on the paternity test is, what do you understand? So look at verse 43. Jesus says, why do you not understand my speech? He gives them the answer, because you are not able to listen to my word. If you're able to listen and hear God when he is speaking, then you're a child of God. Children always understand the language of their father, right? When you tell them no, they pretend that they don't know what you're talking about, but they know you mean no, right? They understand. What if you don't understand Jesus' words or what we're talking about here tonight? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it's because the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. Have you ever shared with someone about Jesus, God, the gospel, their need for him? And they're looking at you like, what are you talking about? What? You get that kind of like deer in the head of like you're either like on crack or they just, they, they just kind of look at you weird, don't they? And you're thinking, don't they get it? Don't they understand what I'm trying to tell them? Well, no, they don't. They don't get it. It's like describing a beautiful sunset to somebody who's blind, okay? If, they, if they're blind from birth and they've never seen a sunset, you can't describe it to them. They lack the capacity to appreciate it. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the reason that they have no capacity to appreciate it is because Satan, the god of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe, so they are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. So when you're talking to somebody, don't be surprised that they give you that kind of that stupid look because they don't get it until they're open enough and God allows them to be open enough to see it, right? So question number three, what do you do or what are you doing? So let's look at verse 44. That's the third question of the paternity test. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you, you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he speaks a lie, he speaks his native language or from his own resources, for he is a liar and he is the father of it. It's like father like son. Our actions actually prove our relationship. And that's the point that Jesus is making, right? 
In a few chapters, Jesus is going to say, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. Ever had somebody say, oh, I love Jesus. I'm all about God. And then you look at their life, and you're like, really? Yeah. Now, the paternity of God is demonstrated by the conformity of God's kids, of you and I, on how well we conform to the image of Jesus Christ in our life. That's why in Luke chapter 6, Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord? Lord, don't you do the things which I say? Obedience proves relationship. That makes sense, guys? Now, Irma Bombeck was an American humorist who wrote in newspaper columns and had a witty way of, of saying things. And this is what she said. Never go to a doctor whose office plants have died. Isn't that kind of good advice? I mean, you're sitting in the doctor's office in the waiting room, and he's going to do surgery on you, right? And you're going for just an evaluation and checkup. And you look around the office, and everything in the office is dead. And you're going, hmm, probably not going to have surgery from this guy, right? So how do we apply that to us tonight? It's very, very simple. Nobody in this room tonight will go to another Christian or another believer for direction or counsel if they, if they seem lost themselves or they seem like they're dead spiritually. You're not going to go to somebody and because you're going through something and say, hey, brother, I need you, whatever. You're not going to go to them and like, you know what, I, I don't see any fruit in their life. I mean, something's not right, you know. That's, that's, the, that's the principle here. So question number four of the paternity test is this. When do you listen? When do you listen? So look at verse 45. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. Now, a sign that a person is not spiritually related to God as their father is their refusal to hear. This wasn't new to Jesus. Israel had a history of refusing to listen to God. You think of the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. You know what their biggest problem was as prophets? Many people they preached to turned away, walked away, ran away because of what they heard. It hit too close to home. They really didn't want to have anything to do with truth. So they ran. Listen to Isaiah chapter 30. God says for these people, God says, for these people are stubborn rebels who refuse to pay any attention to the Lord's instructions. They tell the prophets, shut up. We don't want any more of your reports. They say, don't tell us the truth. Tell us nice things. Tell us lies. It's kind of like the church today, isn't it? It's no different. We don't want preachers. We don't want teachers. We don't want the truth. We don't want the word of God. The church wants what? They want entertainment. They want sermons that don't disturb their comfortable way of life, right? And because Jesus didn't comfort the Jews' affliction but afflicted their current state of comfort, he rattled their cages, they want to kill him. Now, let's look at Verses 48 to 59. Here's where we're going to kind of identify who is this guy. This is the question that the Jews have. Who is this guy? And to this point, Jesus has shattered all their perspectives. He calls them liars, children of the devil, and those who don't know God. You can imagine a conversation like that is not going to go over very well, right? It's not going over very well at all. And what we're about to read is the culmination of a very heated exchange. Here, Jesus is simply stating the truth, but the Jews are getting very emotional about what they're hearing. They're, they're just, I mean, they are just beside themselves. Have you guys ever tried to, uh, or have you guys ever, ever noticed um, something about arguments? You guys ever had an argument with your wife, you know, or, you know, brother or sister? I don't see any hands, so I guess you guys never argue, but. <laughs> oh, you got one way back there. Okay. Um, they, they have different levels to them, don't they? 
It typically be begins at the uh, intellectual level, but it doesn't stay there very long because as you're doing the point and counterpoint and trying to convince the other person, it's not going to last very long there in that state. And then it kind of moves on to another level, moves on to an emotional level, and it just kind of goes downhill from there, right? To the point where you get emotionally involved, you raise your voice, you know, your, your face gets red, and you start thinking, not only do I not like his points, I don't even know if I like this guy, right? And then finally, if it gets really bad, you know, it could be even physical altercation. But so far, what we see here is that there's been some verbal jabbing between Jesus and uh, these Jews. But now it's moved to an emotional level. They begin calling Jesus names, okay, because they can't deal with his arguments. They do not know what to do with it. And by the end of the chapter, in verse 59, we're told that they want to pick up stones and they want to kill him. That's what they're resorting to because in an emotional state, in an intellectual state, he has just kind of wrapped their hands. He has handcuffed them. I mean, he is, I mean, we're told in scriptures that he's what? He is the advocate of the defense for us, right? He's the best lawyer in the world. These guys have no idea who they're arguing with. So there's three possibilities as to who Jesus is. And this passage actually brings it into focus. And it kind of helps answer the question, who is this guy? And that's what they're asking him. Who do you think you are? He's either one, a, an imposter, an evil imposter, or two, He's an incapable promoter saying things that he really cannot carry out or really accomplish. Or three, he is what? He is the eternal creator. So verse 48 says, The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And guys, listen. I mean, just imagine saying that to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, uh, you got a devil. You're, you're demon-possessed. You're a Samaritan and you have a demon. I mean... <laughs> I mean, we laugh, but you know what? At some point, if we were not saved, we'd probably be there too, right? And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. So they're discovering they have no answer for his arguments. And they're reduced to using abusive language. And if you remember, they've been trying to chap Jesus this entire chapter right? Trap after trap after trap. Remember, they sent the temple guards to physically grab him, but they couldn't catch him. They try and they trap him with his words by bringing a woman caught in adultery and challenging him to choose between agreeing or disagreeing with the law of Moses. Well, that didn't work. So now they're resorting to calling him names. You're a Samaritan. You have a demon. Now, you and I, got, you and I hear those words and we don't think it sounds that bad, right? I mean, if I tell Lloyd, hey, you know, you're a Samaritan, he might look at me funny, but, you know, it's not, kind of, it's not going to come to blows. Well, then it's Lloyd. I don't, I don't know. Sorry, Lloyd, I had to use you as an example. But 2,000 years ago, the worst thing a Jew could call another Jew was a Samaritan, okay? The Jews hated, with a capital H, they hated the Samaritans. So they insult Jesus by calling him a Samaritan. And to the Jews, Samaritans were religious frauds. They were heretics. They were false teachers. And not only did they call him a Samaritan, they now accuse him of being demon-possessed. Look at his reaction in verse 49. And I want you guys to notice how calm and poised and simple his answer is. Verse 49, Jesus answered, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father. And you dishonor me. It's so simple, so profound. I mean, <laughs> I almost imagine Jesus kind of like has a smirk on his face when he's saying it. <laughs> I don't have a demon. Come on, guys. So in First Peter chapter 2, verse 23, concerning Jesus says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. They're trying to stir Jesus up here. And he just says, I don't have a demon. You guys ever thought what Jesus actually could have said to them? You know, at that point in time when they're just harassing him and embarrassing him? Psst, 
be gone. I mean, he could have said anything, but he didn't. It was a really good example for us. So the next time you're verbally attacked or someone lashes out at you and you're tempted to rip them into shreds or, or tear them to pieces, you might want to think back to this passage in Scripture on how Jesus actually dealt with these guys because, I mean, they are, throwing, they are hurling some really, really intense insults towards him. You guys know who uh, Winston Churchill is? Winston Churchill had, a, had quite a mouth on him. He had a reputation uh, for having an edge on him, and it was extremely hard to argue with him. On one occasion, someone that he knew, uh, George Bernard Shaw, the playwright in England, was opening a new play, an opening night in London, and he sent two tickets to Sir Winston Churchill with a note, bring a friend if you have one. Not to be outdone, Winston Churchill wrote back and he declined going on the first night. And he said, I'll attend the second night if there is one. Right back at him. Well, he became known for that. And probably the most famous exchange between Winston Churchill and another person was the Lady Astor. She was a member of Parliament and she tried to belittle him publicly on one occasion. And she said, sir, if you were my husband, I'd put arsenic in your tea. And he shouted back, if I was your husband, I'd drink it. (laughs) Now, on another occasion, again in public, he had a little too much to drink. And she shouted, and she shouted out above the crowd, sir, you're drunk. And he looked back at her and he said, madam, you're ugly. (laughs) And in the morning, I will be sober. Now, you guys laugh, right? But it's our human nature that's coming out. It's a tit for tat. It's an eye for an eye. Here's what's amazing. Not Jesus. Jesus did not do an eye for an eye. He did not do a tit for tat. He did not do that at all. That's what's amazing. Now let's look at verse 51. This is also amazing to me. Look at what he says. Again, right after their attack, most assuredly I say to you, If anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. You know what this is? This is an invitation. This is an invitation to them. Even in this late stage of their animosity and rejection, he still is extending his hand to them. His undying love for them, even in the midst of this. Look at verse 52. And down a few verses, we come to a second accusation they bring against Jesus. And then the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. I mean, how many times are these guys going to say he's got a demon, right? But here they go again. Now we know you have a demon. Abraham is dead and the prophets. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead? And the prophets are dead. Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. So this second accusation is he's making promises that are outlandish that nobody can keep. Are you greater than Abraham? I mean, these guys, their minds are short-circuiting right now. They're trying to wrap their heads around what Jesus just said. They know what he just said, but they cannot, for the life of them, understand, did, did, he, did he really just say that? They're saying, wait a minute now, Abraham, he's dead, but Abraham actually heard God's voice and he obeyed, but he's dead. And the prophets, they heard God's voice and, and they spoke God's words, and they're dead. And now you're saying... You come along saying, whoever listens to you, you will never die. You you see what I'm saying? They are just, they they cannot understand this for the life of them. And the fundamental issue that they're dealing with here is, who is this guy? Well, John's gospel gives us a heavenly perspective of who this guy is, right? He's the Messiah. He's the Lord. He's the Savior. He's God in human flesh. So that you and I would believe, and in believing, we would have eternal life. This is no different than what Jesus is doing for them, but they're just not getting it. Their perspective is, 
you're an illegitimate child born of fornication. You're a Samaritan heretic and you're demon-possessed. It's like a broken record. They keep going back to the same thing because they have no argument for him. Now look at verse 56. Jesus says something different. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Now, up to this point, guys, the conversation, I'll just kind of put it this way. Jesus was only throwing grenades at them. But now he's about ready just to kind of come in with a B-52 bomber and just drop a bomb on them. I mean, he's going to say something so unmistakable because they keep saying, who are you? Who do you think you are? You know, are you greater than Abraham? So look at verse 58. And he said, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Not I was, I am. They knew exactly what he meant. Notice the next verse. They took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Jesus to the Jews is saying, what I want you to know is Abraham, the guy you keep pointing to, recognized I was superior and I was the priority. He rejoiced to see my day. That's the point he's trying to make to them. And look at verse 58. Verse 58 is that nuclear bomb. He just drops the bomb in, in verse 58. Before Abraham was, I am. Another translation puts it this way. Before Abraham ever came into existence, I am. I'm, I've been here. So why did he say I am? Well, because in Exodus chapter 3, remember that story? When Moses was sent to the children of Israel as their deliverer, and he said, God, what do I tell these people when they say, who sent me? God's answer, answer was simple. I am that I am. You tell them, I am sent you. So Jesus here is using the name of God, and they knew that this is a direct claim to deity. That's why they got a little ticked off at him, right? And to this point, Jesus claimed several things about himself. And this is just in the Gospel of John. I mean, but there were a lot of claims that Jesus made of himself. But here are just a few just in the Gospel of John so far. He said he was the quencher of human thirst. He was the satisfier of all hunger. He was the light of the world, that he came from heaven, not from earth, that if you believe in him, you will never see death. And now he predates even Abraham. And so for anybody to make these claims, they would be absolutely nuts, unless they were God, right? The eternal creator. And, then, and the crowd knew what he meant. That's why in verse 59, they took up stones, because it was the punishment for blasphemy. So they are saying, you know, you're blasphemous. What you're saying is you're trying to make yourself equal to God, and you're not God. So let's kind of apply that to us. If Jesus is who he claims to be, what should our response be? What should our response be to Jesus Christ? Paul answered that question in Colossians 1.18, and I'm paraphrasing here. It says, Paul says he's Jesus Christ. He's the Redeemer. Forgiving us of our sins, he's the creator calling everything into existence and upholding it by his hand. Everything consists in him. He's the regulator of the universe. He's the creator of the universe. He's the savior of the world. He's the head of the church that in all things he might have the preeminence. And preeminence means first place, right? Does he have first place? Does he have first place in our family? Does he have first place in our marriage, in our relationships? Does he have first place in our, in our business, in our business relationships, in our acquaintances? Does he have first place in our downtime, on our vacations? Or do we kind of forget Jesus when we go on vacation? Does he have preeminence in our education or in our pursuit for intellectual pursuits, for those of you that are, you know, college age? Does he have first place in all the areas of our life that he's asking for, what we watch, what we hear, what we do when no one's looking. Because if Jesus Christ is the God, if, if Jesus Christ is God, the creator, the sustainer, he deserves all of our worship. And I submit to you as we close tonight that that's how we should live our lives, considering him and looking to him and pointing to him in all aspects of our life. 
If you call, Jesus was a carpenter, and he used to build things. And I've always been impressed that carpenters can take these big, long, honking nails and with one hit drive it all the way down in a piece of wood. Are there any carpenters in here? If you are, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of impressed how you can, like, drive a, a hammer or a nail. It's like they kind of hold it up, and then they release it just for a split second as the hammer's coming down. And when their thumb and their finger leave, the head of the hammer hits the nail and boom, driven all the way in. Now, I asked a carpenter who was doing some work on my mom's house, and I said, you know, what's the secret? I mean, how do you, how do you drive a nail like that without hitting your, your fingers and stuff? And he kind of smiled, and uh, he said, it's easy. You keep your eye on the nail, not on the thumb, because if you look at the thumb and think, I'm not going to hit that, but if you're looking at it, you're going to hit it. Guys, you hit what you watch. We're going to hit what we watch. If our eyes are on Jesus, we're going to hit that mark with him, right? You hit what you aim for. For those of you in the room, and sometimes we go to the shooting range, you hit what you aim, aim for, right? Well, some say no, but, you know, that might be a skill level. <laughs> but the question is, what are we aiming for? What's number one in our lives? And what's the most important priority in our lives? Really some tough lessons that Jesus kind of delving out to these Jews, but really good applicable lessons for us to remind us that, you know, we still have opportunity to get our lives right, keep our lives right, continue to abide, and to uh, depend on Jesus. Let's pray, guys. Father, again, we just come to you in Jesus' name, and we're just so thankful, Lord, for how you just drive the point home of who you are and who you need to be in our lives, Lord. Thank you for reminding us that we do miss the mark, Father, but you are so gracious and merciful to us, Lord. Father, for the guys that are in here tonight that have things going on, issues in their lives, we ask, Father, that you would just meet them where they're at. Father, thank you, Father, for just uh, being ever so present with us. Father, watching over our families, our loved ones. And Lord, we just again thank you, Father, for just your word this evening. We pray that it would just sink into our hearts, that, Lord, you would protect it and that it would not be taken away from the enemy. We love you. We praise you, Father. We just lift this time to you and this time of study to you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, guys.